congregation, boys and girls, today is a special day. Of course, every Lord's Day is a special day. Every Lord's Day is ultimately a commemoration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we refer to it as the Lord's Day, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But boys and girls, I wonder how many of you thought about the fact this week that today we are commemorating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We know that there is no one in North America who forgets that Christmas is on the horizon because our world pays a great deal of attention to that holiday for the wrong reasons. But how many of us were looking forward to today to commemorate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Because the outpouring of the Spirit is as significant as the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. So this past week in a religious magazine, I read a very nice illustration that may be very helpful for our boys and girls to connect Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, with all the other important events in what we call redemption history. And what's nice about this illustration, I think, boys and girls, it will be easy to remember. So I want you to look at your hand. Five, there are five fingers, right? So first, we have the birth of Jesus. Then we have the death of Jesus. Then we have the resurrection of Jesus. And then we have the ascension of Jesus. And then comes the fifth of the redemption events, namely the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What struck me about the illustration, so this is not original with me, is that what is unique about our thumb, that our thumb is able to connect with each of those fingers very easily, you see. That's precisely what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is all about. It connects with each of those events, as it were. It brings all that Christ has accomplished from His birth, by His death, by His resurrection, by His ascension, it all brings it together. And that's why the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is truly the crowning piece of God's redemptive work in this world. We could put it very simple. Had the Spirit not come, everything Jesus would have accomplished by His birth, by His death, by His resurrection, and by His ascension would have been in vain. So remember, boys and girls, Go, maybe you could go over it with your moms and dads when you're home. Look at your hand. And what's remarkable is that there are five events. And I have no time to explain this, but the number five is a very important number in Scripture. If you actually go to the book of Leviticus and Numbers, and when you consider all of the, uh, the ceremonial laws and all of the, the figures that are there, you will find that most of them are multiples of five. Because five in the Bible is the number of God's grace. And so when you take those five events together, we have God's gracious provision for fallen sons and daughters of Adam. 
And so we're going to consider the remarkable outpouring of the Spirit of God by way of verse 17 of Acts 2. So again, turn in your Bibles to Acts 2, verse 17. And again, boys and girls, I want you to read along with me. I want to show you where my points come from when I give you the points for the sermon. So in verse 17, we read this, where Peter is quoting the prophecy of Joel. And it shall come to pass, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so clearly we have a prophecy, a fulfilled prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So look at the text. First of all, we're going to talk about the timing of this outpouring. The timing. It says, it shall come to pass when? In the last days. We'll consider what that means. The timing of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the beneficiaries of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. We'll consider what that means. Upon all flesh. And thirdly, the fruits of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because it says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So the the timing of the outpouring of the Spirit, the beneficiaries of the outpouring of the Spirit, and the fruits of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Probably you already know, boys and girls, I'm sure some of you know, that the word Pentecost simply is the Greek word for 50. And so in the Old Testament, Pentecost was the day of the harvest. That was the day when they would present to God the first fruits of the harvest. The climate in Israel is such that they would have a much earlier harvest than we would today here in our country. And so they would bring the first fruits of that harvest to God as a recognition that they owed that harvest to God, that that harvest would not have come about were it not for God's blessing. And God sovereignly chose that day, the commemoration of that day, to pour out His Spirit in such a remarkable way that there was a harvest of souls gathered in on that day, unlike any other event in the history of this world. And so the chapter, of course, chapter 2 begins when it says, now when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And so what we can say about the birth of Jesus, we call that the fullness of time, we can truly say that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is also the fullness of time. It's also noteworthy that this also happened on the first day of the week. Christ arose on the first day of the week, and exactly 50 days later, the Spirit of God is poured out again on the first day of the week. And this is another compelling reason why we come together for worship no longer on the seventh day of the week, but on the first day of the week. 
God has in every way sanctioned that first day of the week as the day in which we assemble ourselves to come and hear the Word of God. And so the opening verses of Acts 1, of course, uh, give us a description of that amazing event when suddenly there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind and there were tongues of fire on the heads of all the disciples and they began to speak in tongues, in, in various languages. What an amazing moment that must have been for the disciples themselves and for the people who heard them. And so there is difference of opinion as to whether it was a speaking miracle or whether it was a hearing miracle. It doesn't matter what it was. The net result was the same, is that all that were gathered there from all over the known world who had all come to Jerusalem, they all heard them speak the wonderful works of God in their own language. What a dramatic moment that was. What a dramatic uh, demonstration of the fact that from that day on forward, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would no longer be limited to the Jewish people, but that from there on it would literally go to the very ends of the world, and that God would see to it that, at the, that to the very ends of the world, that men and women would hear the gospel in their own tongue, in their own language. And so the very fact that we hear the gospel in our own language today is a, is a continuation, if you will, of the Pentecost miracle. But we know, congregation, that when God works, the devil will always seek to oppose it. And so it was. Because just when people, it says, when people were all amazed, and they were in doubt, saying to one another, what meaneth this? What's going on here? And we'll, all of a sudden, we hear the voice of the mockers who said, these men are full of new wine, new wine which has a high alcohol content. So they were simply saying, you're looking at a bunch of drunk guys. They're drunk. What a vile, what a vile attempt by the prince of darkness to cast doubt upon this amazing moment when the Spirit of God manifested Himself so powerfully. But as almost always happens, I would say, is precisely when Satan issues, launches an attack, God will always find a way to overrule what Satan is doing, and ultimately he achieves the very opposite of what he intended to achieve. Because now Peter rises, and he stands up with the eleven, the same Peter who cowered in fear, the same Peter who was afraid of a maid, and who three times denied that he knew Christ and had any relationship with him, that same Peter now filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up boldly and does justice to the special name that Christ had given him, because Peter means rock. And he stands up, and he boldly declares, he said, Ye men of Judea, and all that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. These are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. 
And everybody understood exactly what Peter meant. Jewish people, even if they drank alcohol, most likely would never drink until after the noon hour. This was early morning. This was 9 o'clock in the morning. And so then Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, uses this opportunity to proclaim the Word of God to the multitude that had gathered and to expound to them what was happening here. And then follows, of course, Peter's remarkable sermon. What's remarkable about that sermon is that the sermon as such is not about the Holy Spirit, but that sermon revolves entirely around the person and the work of Christ. A congregation that is so very consistent with who the Holy Spirit is and what His ministry is. The late theologian J.R. Packer famously said, the Holy Spirit is the shy sovereign. So what, is he, what did he mean by that statement, the shy sovereign? He simply meant that the, the Holy Spirit stays in the background. The, the Holy Spirit's work is not to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit's work is not for us to rest in who he is. No, the great work of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Christ. That's what Jesus said about that Spirit in, in chapter 16, where he, where he foretells the coming of that Spirit in that remarkable final discourse that he had with his disciples in which he emphasized again and again that it was essential for him to go away because he said, unless I go away, the Comforter cannot come. I must return to my Father in order that the Comforter might come. And so, congregation... That's precisely what happened. And so when that comforter comes, and when that comforter fills Peter's heart, his mouth flows over about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what characterizes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's precisely what Jesus had said about the Holy Spirit, he said, that Spirit, when He comes, He will testify of me. He will take out of me, and He will show it unto you. And so the great work of the Holy Spirit is to bring attention to the person and the work of the, Holy, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing Peter does is he begins his sermon by quoting the Old Testament passage which we read together from Joel 2, to show that what was happening here had been prophesied and was being now fulfilled before their very eyes. As a matter of fact, when you work your way through that sermon, you will notice how ultimately the entire sermon is an exposition of Old Testament Scripture. Because we have to realize that the Old Testament was the Bible of the Apostles. The Old Testament was the Bible of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament was a complete revelation of divine truth. And so the New Testament, if I may just say this as an aside, the New Testament is not the replacement of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the capstone of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the final chapter of the Old Testament. The New Testament 
is the inspired exposition of Old Testament Scripture in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, in his sermon, Peter is expounding Scripture also here in this text. And he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you will know that that is a fairly common expression that is used throughout the Scriptures. Let me just give you a couple examples. In Isaiah 2, verse 2, we read, And it shall come to pass in the last days that all nations shall flow unto it. All nations will come actually to Jerusalem. That's what happened here on this day. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, There shall come in the last days scoffers, mockers. And in 1 John 2, verse 18, John writes, Little children, it is the last time. So what does the Bible mean by the last days? It simply means that that is the final chapter of history, the concluding chapter of history the concluding chapter of what we would call redemption history. Because ultimately, all of history, from Genesis to Revelation, is redemption history. All of history revolves around the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, everything looks forward to His coming. Everything anticipates His coming. And then, After His coming, we now look back upon His coming and what He has accomplished. And so now, all that remains, the redemptive work has been accomplished. All that now remains is the application of what Christ accomplished. And the application of what He accomplished by His redeeming work is what the Holy Spirit accomplishes. And so in that sense... We are in the last days. The last days began on the first Pentecost. The last days began with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And those last days will continue until Christ returns. So, put it simply, we could say the last day is the period between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, sometimes it is referred to as the gospel age. The only problem I have with that expression is it implies that there was no gospel before that. That is simply not true. But what is meant by that statement is those are the days where suddenly the truth of the gospel breaks forth beyond the boundaries of Israel. And from that day forward, it goes to the very ends of the world, which is continuing until our day. We continue to live in the last days. So what that expression simply means is that beyond those days, nothing else will happen except the conclusion of history. When Christ will return in glory, the last step of His exaltation. And it's during those last days that the Holy Spirit does His mighty work among the nations of the earth. That's why in the opening verse of Hebrews, the apostle writes this, 
God who at sundry times, that means at various times, and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. In these last days. And so there the apostle is saying, when Christ came, this was the ultimate revelation of truth. This was God's ultimate and final statement about who He is. That's why the Gospel of John begins with these remarkable words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so there John identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the Word, as the living Word of God, as the ultimate statement of who God is, the ultimate revelation of who He is. And that's what Joel was prophesying about. And so Peter is saying here, moved by the Holy Spirit, he is saying, this day has now dawned. These last days have now come. This is the the culmination, if you will, the the ultimate outworking of God's redemptive purpose in Christ. So again, boys and girls, let me try to explain that to you so that you can grasp what I'm trying to say. So when we read about the creation of man in Genesis 2, when was God finished making Adam? You know how we made Adam. He took the the earth, he took the soil, he took the dirt of the earth, and out of it he formed this magnificent human body. But it wasn't until he blew into his nostrils that Adam became a living soul. Which means that at that moment, what made Adam a living soul is that he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. At that moment, Adam became a walking temple. And so, What we see there is how intimate a relationship God wanted with that creature that He made in His own image. So intimate a relationship that He dwelt within the very heart of Adam, a temple of the Holy Ghost. And so we see that Adam was truly the masterpiece of a triune God. He was created as God's Son. The very last verse of Luke tells us, Adam, the Son of God. So, he was created as the Son of the Father, bearing the image of God's Son and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat that. The masterpiece of a triune God, the Son of the Father, bearing the image of God's Son and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. How remarkable. And by the way, that will be the outcome of God's redeeming work. That will be the ultimate result of His redeeming work. So God's redeemed people will forever be the sons and daughters of the Father, forever. They will forever bear the image of God's Son, and they will forever be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's why. God's redeeming work was not complete until the Spirit was poured out. 
And so that's, so that's why the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is so very important, because now the picture is complete. That's why I use the example, with, remember it with your hand, it's that the sun that connects with all four of these fingers. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings everything together. And so the, the marvelous outcome of the work of the Holy Spirit, who was shed forth on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that fallen human beings are restored again to be the very people of God. And that means that fallen human beings, not only are they made alive by the Holy Spirit, but they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit again. And so we see in the fullness of time, God gave His Son to accomplish redemption. So, The birth of Christ, we could say, means God for us. But you know, Pentecost means God in us. So not only is God for us, for His people, through Christ and His finished work, but on the basis of that finished work, God can be in us again. He can dwell in us again. And so the ultimate outcome of the redeeming work of the triune God, is that we become human beings again who find their fulfillment in union and communion with the living God. Congregation, that's what eternal life is. That's what life meant for Adam and Eve. Why were they living souls? What was their joy and their happiness before they fell? Their joy was that they had this intimate relationship with God, this wonderful father-child relationship, and that they enjoyed daily communion and fellowship with God. A congregation that is exactly God's desire. That is His good pleasure. His good pleasure is to take fallen sinners like you and I are and to restore us into what God originally created us to be. So God's purpose in His redeeming work is to bring us back into a father-child relationship with Himself and to have, again, fellowship and communion with us. And that begins here, congregation. That begins here in this world. That's why Ezekiel 36 is a wonderful prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Let's read verses 26 and 27 of Ezekiel 36. And there we read this. A new heart also will I give you. And notice what it says here. And a new spirit will I put within you. There you have it. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. That brings us automatically to our second point. Namely, who are 
the beneficiaries of all this? Of course, I've already been implying that by everything I've said. But let's look again at our text. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. That in itself is a remarkable statement. So what all flesh here means, it literally means all manner of men. Men anywhere to be found in the world. So as I said at the beginning, this blessing would not be restricted to the Jewish people only. What a favorite nation they had been. But from now on forward, from here on forward, now that mighty work of God's Spirit will become manifest among all flesh. So this is the beginning, as we said, of the worldwide ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the exalted Christ, because we read together from Acts 2 that it was Christ who shed forth this, Peter said. Now, does that mean that prior to the day of Pentecost that the Spirit did not work? Of course, that's not true. The Spirit also worked in the Old Testament. The same Spirit worked in the hearts of God's people. But the focus is primarily on what He did in individuals. Never before in history was the work of the Spirit so far-reaching and so extensive and so all-encompassing as it has been since the outpouring of that Spirit on this very, very special day. It's interesting. If you actually do a search, if you have a computer concordance, and you actually look at all of the references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, you will be surprised how very frequently the Old Testament speaks about the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit who was poured out on the day of Pentecost is not an other Spirit. It's the very same Spirit, but now He is shed forth in a whole new way, in a whole unique way. And that's the reason why the the apostles began to speak in all of the languages of the known world. Actually, what happened, boys and girls, at the day of Pentecost is the exact opposite of what happened at the Tower of Babel. You know what happened in Genesis 11? That when the descendants of Noah again rebelled against God, when they followed the evil leadership of King Nimrod, and they built the Tower of Babel as a, as a symbol of their rebellion against God, that God came down and He confused the languages. Until then, everybody had spoken the same language, and suddenly people could no longer understand each other. They were forced to disperse. But now on the day of Pentecost, We see that God, on the basis of the finished work of Christ, He reverses the curse of Babel. And now, all of a sudden again, people from every ethnic group, from every conceivable area in in the known world at that time, all of a sudden they can hear the Word of God again in their own language. And congregation, we today are the beneficiaries of the fact that the Spirit of God was poured out upon all flesh. Until this very day, 
The words of Isaiah 66, verse 23, are fulfilled that from Sabbath to Sabbath, from the rising of the sun until the going down thereof, God is being worshipped around the world by all flesh, by all manner of men, from all kinds of language groups, all kinds of ethnic groups, from the rising to the end of the day around the world, men and women are worshipping God today all as a result of the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So what's really going on until this day is the fulfillment of that prophecy of Ezekiel 47. You may want to read that when you're home. That prophecy where a river comes out from the sanctuary, from Jerusalem. And that that river begins to flow into the wilderness where there is nothing but death. And as that river flows... Wherever that river comes, it brings life. It turns the wilderness into a garden. That prophecy is a prophecy of the work of the Holy Spirit. At first, that river is very narrow and very shallow. But as you read the chapter, that river gets wider and wider and it gets deeper. And that river is still flowing until this day. That should humble us, congregation, because that river has reached us. That river of God's grace by the Spirit has reached our generation. But there is something else that we should not overlook here. But it says here, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Now, you know that often the Bible uses the word flesh in a very negative way. When the Bible talks about our flesh... It talks about our sinful nature, our corrupt nature, our rebellious nature. Flesh is symbolic of the the radical depravity of the human heart. By nature, we are all flesh. By nature, we are hostile to God and we are hostile to His Word. By nature, we have no use for God. We have no use for His Son We have no use for His Word. That's what makes the gift of the Holy Spirit as remarkable as the gift of God's Son. So we can say of the Holy Spirit that He too is the Father's unspeakable gift to sinners. God so loved the world. He so loved this wicked world, this corrupt world, this rebellious world, this ungodly world that He gave His only begotten Son in the fullness of time, but also that He gave His Holy Spirit in the fullness of time. Because who were these people that were gathered there? Who, Who were in that crowd? Were they deserving of this favor? Were they deserving of this blessing? Congregation, the people that were there, they were Jerusalem sinners, John Bunyan famously coined that phrase, Jerusalem sinners, and what he meant to say, Jerusalem sinners are the worst kind of sinners. And why? What had those Jerusalem sinners done? They had demanded the crucifixion of the Son of God. These were the people who had been screaming on top of their voice, crucify Him, crucify Him, away with Him. If there were any people on earth 
that were deserving that God would pour out His wrath upon them, the people of Jerusalem should have received an outpouring of the wrath of God. And yet upon these people, upon these people, God pours out His Spirit in an abundant measure. And that's all because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because were it not for that sacrifice, how could a holy God bestow His Holy Spirit upon such unholy sinners as we are? How is it possible that God's Holy Spirit would have anything to do with sinful flesh? And it's all because congregation, all because of what Christ accomplished on the floor, because there on the cross of Calvary, God poured out His wrath upon His only begotten Son. He poured out His wrath fully upon His only begotten Son. Oh, Jesus knew it. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but Thy will be done. There Jesus willingly emptied the cup of God's wrath. Willingly He He experienced the full reality of hell when he was forsaken by his father. Also that God, on the basis of what his son accomplished, that God could now freely bestow his spirit upon all flesh. And dear believer, dear child of God, you are the living example of that. Explain to me, why should God have dealt with you? Why? Can you explain that? Why are you today what you once were not? Because God graciously, for Christ's sake, granted you His Holy Spirit. You became the personal beneficiary of all this. That's what makes Pentecost so amazing, is that God pours out His Spirit on hell-worthy sinners. That's why it's so remarkable that Jesus told His disciples that they should begin at Jerusalem. They would have been inclined to skip Jerusalem. In light of what they had experienced there, in light of what they had done to Christ, the disciples would have been inclined to go anywhere else except Jerusalem. Though Jesus says you must begin at Jerusalem precisely in that city that that betrayed me, that city that cast me out, that city that caused me to be nailed to the cross, that's where you must begin. And that's where God begins that mighty work of the Spirit being poured out upon all flesh. What an amazing illustration that is of what the grace of God is all about, congregation. Because the grace of God not only means that God gives us what we don't deserve, that's true, it's God's undeserving favor. Not only is it God's forfeited favor, we, by our sin we forfeit God's favor, but ultimately God's grace means that God gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve. We deserve hell. And He promises heaven to all those that believe in His Son. We deserve to be forsaken by God. And yet in the gospel, God promises that He will embrace us in the arms of His love. 
These people deserved the outpouring of God's wrath. And instead, God pours out His Spirit. The language is remarkable. In other words, what happened on that day, it wasn't just a drop here and a drop there. No, the Spirit was poured out. You know what that actually means, congregation? Let me put it very simple. On that day, God poured out His heart of love. That Spirit came out of the heart of love. It was an outpouring of the love of God. Out of the abundance of God's heart, He poured out His Spirit. Belgian Confession, in its opening article, has this beautiful description of who God is. It says, God is the overflowing fountain of good. What a beautiful statement that is. Over, and here, here, God is overflowing. His heart is overflowing. Out of His heart of love flows the Holy Spirit. So we could say that in the incarnation, God gave Himself in His Son. But on Pentecost, God gives Himself in His Spirit. He pours out His Spirit. And that's so consistent with the character of God. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. To put it simply, boys and girls, you may never think of God as a stingy God, a God who gives His children the bare minimum. God is not a God who gives His people a crumb now and then. God is a God of overflowing mercy, of overflowing grace, a God of overflowing love, a God who poured out His Spirit upon all flesh, a God whose desire it is to bring a sinner back to Himself, to bring us back into fellowship and communion with Himself. Oh, I will do it. This is indeed God's sovereign good pleasure. And what will be the outworking always of that Spirit being poured out upon us? What happens when that Spirit gets a hold of me? The outworking always will be that we will ultimately be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God takes hold of us. When God grants us His Spirit, when that miracle happens to us personally, that's what happens in every conversion. In every conversion, the Holy Spirit deals with a sinner who by nature is nothing but flesh, nothing but corrupt and rebellious flesh. And the outworking of His work will always be that we will embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Because that's His goal. His goal is to glorify Christ. His goal is to take out of Christ and to show it unto us. So when that Spirit gets a hold of us, when He convicts us of our sin, when He shows us the ugliness of our sin, the vileness of our sin, it's only for one reason. And that is to make room for Christ. His goal in working in your soul, dear believer, 
His goal is to glorify Christ. His goal is to bring you to Christ. His goal, the reason He strips you of your own righteousness and empties you of all that is of yourself, the reason He confronts you with your sinnership is so that the Lord Jesus Christ will become irresistibly attractive to your soul. That's His goal, to take out of Him and to show it unto you. And that's why saving faith, faith in Christ, is the only undeniable evidence of the saving work of the Holy Spirit. There is no spiritual life that does not focus on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyone who claims spiritual life and yet claims to be a stranger of Christ and have no knowledge of Him, they are deceiving themselves. Because every man that has heard and learned of the Father, Jesus said, comes to me. How do you know that my Father is teaching you? How do you know that you are being taught by my Spirit? When you are taught by my Spirit, you will always come to me, and you will keep on coming to me, because that's the very nature of the work of the Holy Spirit. And finally, a few more comments about the fruits of all of this. And of course, I've woven this throughout my message, but it says here, it says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, I can be very brief here. Um, it's very re- refreshing for me to read John Calvin's commentary, where he gives a very simple explanation for these figures of speech. He's simply saying that Joel was using language to which his people could relate. In other words, he was using language that referred to the means whereby God communicated with men at that time. And so what this simply is saying, that as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all flesh, you will witness an amazing transformation in the lives of those who, upon whom that Spirit comes. And here it says that they will prophesy. So what do you think of boys and girls when you hear the word prophesy? We are inclined to think that prophesy always means foretelling the future. But that's a mistake. Of course, prophets did. But what a prophet very simply is, a prophet is a spokesman for God. A prophet is one who speaks the Word of God. A prophet is someone who communicates God's truth to others. That's what a prophet is. So again, a prophet is God's spokesman. So what this simply means is that, the, that, that Peter is saying, and that's what Joel was prophesying, when the, Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God gets hold of a sinner, when the Spirit establishes His presence in the heart and life of a sinner, it will manifest itself, and one of, the may, one of the ways in which it will manifest itself is that the tongue of that individual will be transformed into an instrument for God's glory. We know from James 3 that James tells us that the tongue is often an instrument of the devil, and it's kindled by the fire of hell. The harm that the human tongue does 
If, if ever we see the depravity of man is how the tongue is used. But when the Spirit gets a hold of us, when the Spirit renews us, when that Spirit begins to dwell in us, we begin to prophesy. That means suddenly our tongue begins to declare who God is. Our tongue begins to worship God. Our tongue begins to honor Him. Our tongue begins to speak the Word of God. And that's why congregation, it's often a mystery exactly when the work of the Holy Spirit begins. That's as great a mystery as the conception of a child. But I know without any doubt that all of you were conceived because you're here. You are the living evidence. There was once a moment that you were conceived in your mother's womb. And so even though that moment moment itself is a mystery, the results are not a mystery. The results will be known. Joel is saying, when that Spirit comes upon all flesh, you will see remarkable things. Then your your sons and daughters will begin to prophesy. Of course, that was already happening on that day. Because the people said, "We, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Probably not just the disciples, but all who are gathered in that upper room, perhaps a, a crowd of 120, suddenly their tongues became amazing instruments that declared the glory of God. And so it will be until this day. I realize that true Christianity isn't just talk, obviously not. It is a true Christian is someone who in whose life his talk and his walk are in sync, as we would say today. They, they reaffirm each other. But it is true, however, that the grace of God, that the Holy Spirit, when He gets a hold of us, transforms a fallen, wretched son and daughter of Adam into a worshiper of the living God. And then the words of Scripture apply here too. It says, out of the abundance of the heart, a man speaks. The congregation, you who profess to be a Christian, do your children know that? Do your grandchildren know that? Do your colleagues know that? Do your friends know that? Can they tell that you are speaking out of the abundance of your heart. Because when the Spirit of God dwells in us, the Spirit of Christ, whose work it is to glorify Christ, to take out of Him and show it unto us, when that happens, we cannot but speak of Christ. We cannot but speak of His beauty and of how precious He is and how precious He becomes. That's why it said to the apostles in Acts 5.42, a couple chapters later, it says this, this beautiful, simple statement, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Why? They were filled with the Spirit. And when you are filled with the Spirit of Christ, you cannot but speak of Christ. But we see also, and we need to conclude all of this, We also see a beautiful, beautiful uh, reference here to God's covenantal faithfulness. 
Because these were the sons and daughters of Abraham. And God had said, I will be your God and the God of your seed. And it's being fulfilled on this very day. These 3,000 who had been demanding the crucifixion of Christ, who actually had the audacity to say His blood be upon us and our children. Think about that. They were invoking God's covenant curse upon them and their children. What does Peter say to them when when they're in absolute despair after Peter told them bluntly, you have crucified your own Messiah? And in holy despair they say, men and brethren, what must we do? Then Peter says to the very people who said, his blood be upon us and our children. He said, for the promise is to you and to your children. That's the amazing grace of God. There you see that Peter told them the exact opposite of what they deserved. And so, yes, the blood of Christ came upon them and their children, but not to destroy them, but to save them. A congregation. That promise that is made here, that promise that God makes, one of those, I shall, they shall prophesy. We see that happening generation after generation. We are the sons and daughters of a previous generation. A previous generation whom God used to prophesy to us, to communicate the Word of God to us. And what do we see in the whole history of the church? That God fulfills this promise. And time and again, we witness the miracle that our sons and daughters begin to prophesy. A fulfillment of Psalm 22, a seed shall serve him, and they will come, and they will testify of the righteousness of God. That's the amazing thing. That generation after generation, we see the same fruits of the Spirit working its way out in the lives of the next generation, sons and daughters, prophesying. Congregation, that's what we should long for. That's what we should pray for. And this should encourage you to do this. Parents, bow your knees. Point your finger to this promise. God loves to be reminded of His own Word. He loves to be reminded of His own promise. And perhaps you might be discouraged about your children or your grandchildren. But bow your knees and say, Lord, hast thou not said that our sons and daughters would prophesy? Hast thou not bound thyself to that promise? And He does that every time baptism is administered. Every time baptism is administered, God is saying, As surely as I am God, as surely as my name is Jehovah, your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. You will see my work in the next generation. Because He is the God of His people and of their seed. And that's why we read in Jeremiah 31, 17, There is hope in thine end, saith the Lord. I have to say that the Dutch rendition is much closer to the original. And I I double-checked with Dr. Barrett. You know, Dr. Barrett is a a Hebrew, an expert in the Hebrew. Because what does it say in the Dutch Bible? It says there is 
expectation for thy seed. That's what it says. And he agreed with me that that's a much better rendering of, of that particular verse. What a beautiful statement. There is expectation for thy seed based on this promise. And that's why, parents, even if you don't see the fruits right now, wrestle for the souls of your children. Wrestle with this promise until you may witness. And sometimes we have to wait a long time. Sometimes parents don't see it. But God will fulfill this promise. Our sons and our daughters shall prophesy. We are still in the last days. Christ has not yet returned. In other words, Christ is not finished yet. His truth will stand forever, and His covenant bonds He will not sever. If you maybe have noticed that this text is filled with shells, God's shells, right? There's nothing more certain than God's shells. And therefore, there is expectation for our seed. There is expectation for our generation. So, my dear friend, is there reliable biblical evidence that that Spirit has gotten a hold of you, that that Spirit has transformed your heart and your life? Is there evidence that you are indwelt by that Spirit? Have you become a new creature in Christ? Thanks be to God that ministry continues. My friend, if you're still a stranger of this Christ who shed forth His Spirit, then seek Him today. Because this Christ told us that if we ask His Father for His Spirit, He will more certainly give and answer that prayer than an earthly father would answer the request of His child. And so God is not a reluctant God who is reluctantly gracious. Remember, He poured out His Spirit upon all flesh. And He is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's why this passage ends with these words with which I end. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we want to thank Thee for the unspeakable gift of Thy Spirit, poured out in the last days upon all flesh, resulting in the dramatic transformation of the hearts of rebellious sons and daughters of Adam, so that we begin to prophesy and to show forth Thy praises and become worshipers of Thee, the living God. Lord, we pray for Thy continued work in this congregation. We pray that also in the midst of this congregation, these words may continue to be fulfilled, that our sons and daughters will prophesy. And so bless this word. Oh, we pray that no one here will continue to resist the Spirit and to grieve the Spirit. But Lord, that we would bow at Thy feet today, 
and that we would seek thy face, thou who art a God of abundant mercy in Christ. And Lord, wilt thou graciously continue with the mighty work of thy Spirit in the hearts of thy people, that we increasingly may show forth the praises of thy beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of him as a result of the indwelling ministry of this blessed Spirit. Go with us now to our homes, gather with us again at this evening hour, and hear us for Christ's sake. Amen.